Now, as I said uh, a short while ago in this lecture, we meet one of the inhabitants of the other world, uh, the goddess Macha. She is the goddess intimately associated with the Navan complex, with Navan Fort in County Armagh, one of the royal sites that I've already uh, mentioned. You remember uh, from the introduction that um, Navan Fort is this great enclosure with the great mound within it, and the other smaller circular enclosure, both of these sites excavated many years ago by uh, Dudley Waterman between 1963 and 72, uh, with exceptional results. And the large earthwork, as we saw already, encloses the summit of this Drumlin Ridge, and it has that configuration that we saw elsewhere, internal ditch and uh, external bank. And the enclosure here, judging from some very limited excavation, seems to be more or less contemporary uh, with Ronnery, the great enclosure on the hill of Tara. Of course, and I've already mentioned this, Navan Fort, Awan uh, Maka figures in early Irish literature as a great royal settlement. It was the court of Conquabar, king of uh, Ulster. And it's described in the usual terms of extravagant uh, splendor that we've come across already. And you can see here that uh, in this particular um, account from the tale, The Wooing of Emer, you have once again uh, an account of a great prosperous king, a successful a sacred king living in a, a wonderful house with numerous compartments and so on and so, so forth. Like the description of the house of Alan and Mev at Rathcrochan at ancient Crochan, this is the same literary stereotype applied to any medieval royal residence. But as we've seen um, in these stories, and this was the case in that story about the birth of Cúhollán, even in these accounts of, you know, heroic activities, there are elements that take us to older and deeper uh, mythic levels. And sacred kingship and the other world are, are very much part of the story of Awan Maka. The goddess Maka um, is worth looking at from one particular angle uh, in particular. She figures uh, prominently um, in the place lore, the prose din Hanukkahs of Armagh, Ardmaka, the great ecclesiastical centre nearby. And here there are different manifestations of the, the goddess. You've got Maka, who's allegedly the wife of Anemeth, one of the sort of earlier visitors to the, the island of Ireland. The second daughter is a, a red-haired Maka, who is credited, as you can see, with basically uh, creating the enclosure at Awan Maka. And a third Maka is said to be the wife of one Krunda Krunok. And um, she is a Maka who raced against the king's horses in a famous tale, as we see in, in a, a moment. Now, it may seem strange to have no less than three separate manifestations of the one figure, but we should remember that variants like this in myth, they, they serve to complement rather than contradict one another and illustrate sort of different aspects um, of the, the, the divine figure. Um, in linking, for example, one of these goddesses uh, to the land of Maka, um, 
were linking a female figure to a, a, a feminized land. Um, various writers have seen uh, in these three markers a reflection perhaps of, you know, Dumézil's trifunctional ideology. Um, but I, I think we can just gently sideskip the complications here of a triplet of markers and simply focus on the third marker, who is most interesting from, I suppose, an archaeological point of view. She gave her name to Awan Marka after racing against the horses of the king, Conquabar, when she gave birth to twins, uh, Evan. And her mythology is of special interest. The fullest account of this third marker um, occurs in another tale, and particularly in the second recension of a tale called The Debility of the Ulsterman. And basically, it's a fairly long account of this particular um, myth. Part of it reads, Whence the affliction of the olive? It is not difficult. Kronakmak Ogneman of the olive was a hosteler of 100 cows. He lived in the wilderness and mountains and had many sons. Moreover, his wife was dead. One day he was in his house on his own and he saw a woman, a woman coming towards him in the house. The woman immediately began to prepare food, as if she were in the house she had always been in. When night came, she served the family without question. She slept with Krennic that night. She remained with them for a long time afterwards, and they lacked no produce, neither food nor clothing. There's more to this than a simple tale of a woman visiting a house. She appears as a supernatural being. She's the wife of a wealthy mortal of 100 cows, and it's very clear that her appearance and her union with this Krennic increased his wealth. He, however, um, was a boastful man, and at the assembly, or Eanach at Awanmacha, boasted that his wife could run faster than the horses of the king. And in this he broke a pledge of silence and discretion that he had made to her. And his pregnant wife is forced to race, like a mare, against the horses of the king. And you know, this part goes, she raced against the chariot, and then when the chariot reached the end of the green, her child's birth began in front of it, so that she gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl. It is from this that Awan Macha is named. She cried out in her childbirth, and anyone who heard her fell ill for five days and four nights. That pain used to come perpetually to every Ulsterman who was there. For nine generations of each man who was there, that was the affliction of the olive. Basically, she gave birth to twins and cursed the Ulsterman, who for nine generations must suffer the same debility of childbirth as she. Some people thought it was a sort of kuvad of some description. But it's a weakness that meant only Cúhullan, who was not Ulster-born, could defend Ulster when Mev and the men of Connacht attacked, as recounted in the Thorne. So, on one level here, we have a tale that gives an explanation for the name of Awan Marka. But there are multiple layers of meaning here, and the equine horsey associations are immensely important. All of the manifestations of um, Marka are basically goddesses associated with land and fertility, and um, 
we don't have to dwell too much on the possible trifunctional nature of these uh, female figures. Some scholars are happy to accept the notion of um, a trio of mockers. Others think that perhaps um, we should simply focus perhaps on one or or two. And it's fair to say that not every legendary female was a goddess of sovereignty. But anyway, this association with horses is particularly significant, as I've said. And this is where we find, I think, important older layers of meaning. One of Cúhollán's two chariot horses was called the Liamacha, the grey of Macha. And this may have been one of the twin foals, you remember, that were born at his uh, birth. And this grey of Macha was a formidable animal. It shed tears of blood before the hero's death, and then, though mortally wounded, came to protect him so that 50 were slain by his teeth and 30 by each of his hooves. This association uh, between Macha and horses including the racing of horses at Awanmaka, may be allusions, I think, to equine rituals at Navan, linked to both to the goddess and to the sacral kingship there. Some writers um, see this Maka as the Irish equivalent of the Welsh Chrianon and the continental horse goddess uh, Epona. Chrianon, uh, whose name derives from Rigantona, uh, the great queen, figures in the prose series of tales known as the Four Branches of the Mad- Mabinogi. This, the Mabinogion, was written in the late 11th and um, perhaps then between then and the early 14th centuries. It's very interesting to compare elements of this Welsh tale and the tale we've just recounted in the debility of the Ulsterman. Rhiannon in the Mabinogion appears as another world figure, riding a great white horse, and she's pursued by one Pwyll, Lord of Diffet in South West Wales, who actually also bears the title, interestingly enough, Lord of the Other World. He follows her on horseback in the story, and even though she appears to ride at an even uh, slow pace, he's never able to catch up with her. Her horse is evidently magical. The horsewoman eventually halts, and she indicates that she wishes to be his bride. But tricked into keeping a careless promise, Pwyll is obliged to permit her betrothal uh, to another, who in turn is eventually outwitted and induced to relinquish his claim. And after some time, the union of Pwyll and Hrianon produces a male child, and on the night of the birth, the boy disappears. Accused of infanticide, um, this Welsh queen, Rhiannon, is sentenced to spend seven years at the mounting block outside the court, and she has to offer to carry strangers to the court on her back, like a horse. Uh, Tiernan, Lord of Gwent, has a mare that foaled with remarkable regularity every mayday, and every mayday this foal would promptly disappear. On this occasion, coinciding with the boy's birth, however, he prevented a fine, newly born colt from being stolen, and he simultaneously found a child at the door. After four years, the colt is given to the child who has grown prodigiously. Tiernan then recognises the boy as the son of Pwyll and takes him to the court, where Rhiannon is released from a punishment. Now, this is a convoluted tale, as you can see. It's a complicated narrative, in fact, and, um, combining aristocratic lore and folktale motifs, but there are very clear 
mythic themes embedded here. Like Macha, Rhiannon would seem to have been originally a goddess of sovereignty with equine aspects. It's interesting to sort of summarize the, the detail. In addition to her magical and horsey qualities, uh, she possesses the principal features of the goddess of sovereignty, who seeks and promotes an acceptable male candidate for kingship. She deliberately chooses Quill as her mate, as we saw. She offers him a feast, he achieves wisdom, he consummates his marriage, and after the various difficulties described, he has a son and secures dynastic succession. In addition to this sort of supernatural content, the other threads that connect Macha, wife of Krinuk, and Frianung are slender but very persuasive. Think about it. In each, there's a horse race with supernatural qualities. There's a contest between a goddess and a king. A birth follows. Twins in the case of Macha. The birth of Prithari and a colt in the case of Rhiannon. And both are compromised by the careless comments of their prospective uh, their respective mates. And most significantly, both of these women undergo a humiliation uh, that blurs the distinction between horse uh, and woman. And here we see some of the mythology that lies behind the Gallo-Roman goddess uh, Epona. Epona now is well known simply in carvings and inscriptions in the Gallo-Roman world, notably in eastern Gaul and in the Rhineland, and her Celtic origin is not in doubt. And the features that associate her with Macha and Rhiannon are basically remnants of a mythology that must have associated Epona too with equine rituals of some sort. Her name derives from the Indo-European equos, horse, a word we'll come across again. And she's invariably depicted, um, uh, you know, associated with horses on many inscribed and carved slabs on the continent. And indeed in Britain there are four or five dedications or representations that include, well, fragments of a stone statuette from Colchester, for example. And indeed there's an inscription on a, a Roman altar on the Antonine Wall here in Scotland too. I've chosen these two particular um, illustrations from uh, a host of um, representations of uh, Epona for uh, a very special reason. Um, you can see in each of these, um, one from Bulgaria and one from Germany, uh, the figure of the goddess is flanked by a number of horses. In these cases, the horses face inwards and face the goddess. But in many other representations, Epona is depicted simply with a horse, uh, a mare, with a mare in a foal, with one horse, or indeed occasionally with groups of horses, as here, uh, facing outwards. Indeed, in one German study of the representations, no less than seven different types of representation have been sort of noted in the horse and woman uh, configuration here. Basically, I've chosen these illustrations because they offer a clue to, to something else. Um, uh, many years ago, um, the Celtic scholar Garrett Olmsted wrote at some length on the iconography of the very famous Gundestrup cauldron. And he, in the pages of antiquity, in fact, and elsewhere, suggested that the various illustrations on this very famous piece were actually depictions of a continental version 
of the great cattle raids of Toynbo uh, Cúlia. Uh, nobody that I've ever met thinks this is even remotely likely. He was really uh, speculating, but it was an imaginative piece uh, of work. This particular panel, for example, on the famous uh, cauldron he suggested, uh, betrayed uh, the great Queen Mev. The inward-facing elephants um, seemed to suggest to him uh, that um, these perhaps represented her warlike nature, elephants representing the power of the military power of Rome. Um, the wheels, he thought, represented the chariot of the great queen, and she made a circuit of her camp at the beginning of the Thine in her chariot. But I think that um, the, the fact that uh, this female figure is flanked by elephants is interesting. Um, it might be that we're looking at a that we're looking at a, an illustration of mistress of beasts here, but the prominent arrangement of a female flanked by ele, uh, by animals, I think, takes us in a, a very specific um, uh, direction. In fact, we we come across this um, elsewhere as well on the very fragmentary um, Marlborough bucket. You again have a, the last traces of a head that's generally believed by those who have studied this piece, uh, to be female. And here again, on either side of the female head, as you see, there is a horse uh, depicted, in this instance, a horse uh, facing outwards. Now, to come back to the literary evidence, the Ulster hero, uh, Fergus Macroich, who is a prominent figure in the great cattle raid, is renowned for his remarkable uh, sexual prowess. And he's usually assumed to be um, the son of Roich, a male figure, his father, a great horse. But uh, the scholar Conscious de Cahine has pointed out that while this figure, Roich, the father, is generally taken to be uh, a male, there are several suggestions that actually we should be thinking in terms of the name Roich applying to Fergus's mother. Thus, uh, there are at least two instances when Fergus should probably be considered to be the son of the great mare, the Irish equivalent of Epona. And I would like to think that perhaps if the term great mare was a literary epithet for the insular horse goddess, then this may be a further clue to the interpretation of that particular panel on the, the Gundrastrup cauldron. Um, perhaps continental Celts saw elephants as the ultimate great horse. And perhaps here we have, in fact, a depiction of the horse goddess, and not uh, Queen Maeve, both on the Gundrastrup piece and on the um, Marlborough bucket. Mev's, um, Mocha's association um, with Navan suggests that basically horse rituals were hugely important here. And the excavations of the Navan Mound uh, have suggested that time and time again, ritual activity uh, was to the fore. And very briefly to turn to the archaeological evidence, which I will um, uh, speed through, I think, when... <coughs> Waterman excavated the great mound. I suspect he thought he would find a passage tomb like the Mound of the Hostages. But things proved very different here in the great mound at Navan. After removing a mantle of clay 
from the summit of the mound, he uncovered the surface of a great cairn of stones, as you can see. And this is where any similarity with the Mount of the Hostages rapidly ended, because beneath the cairn of stones, he found this extraordinarily complicated scenario of post holes and palisade trenches that clearly represented a bewilderingly complicated pattern of successive circular structures on the site before the great cairn was actually built. We touched on this in the first lecture. The, the earliest significant development on the site was the digging of a ditch marked here and then the digging of a, a whole series of pits forming a great circle uh, within that ditch. And this happened sometime in the late Bronze Age. And this was the first circular sanctuary uh, on the site. And to use Mercia Iliad's term, this was the exemplary event or gesture that allowed every builder of every subsequent circular structure there, whether mound or enclosure, to be part of that great cyclical recurrence of what had been uh, before, the famous regenerative eternal return. Such important repetitive acts and rituals literally transported the people there into mythical time, time and time again. An exceptionally complex sequence of circular structures um, uh, were found here, as you can see. It's actually rather difficult to, to summarize the, uh, the sequence in any brief way, but essentially um, you can see ringed in red there, a whole series of circular enclosures more or less built on the same spot, the A, B, and C enclosures. Um, these were interpreted as circular houses, basically, um, and their diameters ranged from 10 to about 13 and a half meters. Each of these groups of foundation trenches in the A, B, and C enclosures, ringed in red, were constructed in a very peculiar sequence. If you take, for example, the C rings there, the sequence was the middle circle was dug first, and after a period of time, it was replaced by the outer foundation trench. And then after a further period of time, the inner circle replaced the other two. And this happened in the A circles and in the B circles. And it was also recorded in those other circles of attached enclosures to the north. There is a rather bewildering um, sequence here of repetitive acts on the one spot. You can see that some of those circles on the north um, had on the right, they're ringed in blue, the remains of avenues approaching the... Um, somewhat larger northern enclosures. And not surprisingly, um, these were interpreted as routeways into a stockade. There was even a third set then of enclosures, the E enclosures, uh, built after um, this complicated earlier lot. Not surprisingly, um, also domestic interpretations were advanced. And this was seen as an elite settlement. In one of the C foundation trenches. In fact, the famous skull of a Barbary ape was found. And it's quite natural, I think, to see this as a very prestigious gift. Um, it's the sort of thing that Phoenicians, as you can see, uh, brought with them 
to ancient Nimrod in the 9th century BC, as this famous piece in the British Museum shows. But I wonder, is prestigious gift underestimating the significance of this? Um, at the palace in Nimrod, these were gifts given to a sacred king. And I wonder if that skull from Bar- of a Barbary ape from Navan was perhaps a similar gift to a similar person. And we'll come back to this theme later on. But as I said a moment ago, the various interpretations of this bewilderingly complex sequence of structures led to many publicized accounts of um, roundhouses with attached uh, cattle um, kraals or stockades approached, as I said, by this um, avenue of parallel palisade trenches. But once again, I think there's abundant evidence now to suggest that any purely domestic function is something that should be simply forgotten. It's not even certain, actually, that all of these structures were roofed here. So time and time again now, the suggestion that we're dealing with ritual enclosures of some sort carries greater and greater weight. Um, And this emphasis on ritual and ceremonial has now gathered momentum because further work at that smaller enclosure within the great enclosure at Navan has demonstrated that once again you had here a series of conjoined enclosures built on the same spot with the same very strange repetitive sequence, middle ring built first, uh, outer ring next and then inner ring. Um, The sheer size of these, as you can see from the the, the scale there, in excess of 20 metres as far as the the larger elements are concerned, seems to indicate that they could never have been roofed. And once again, uh, finds of cremated bone and other discoveries suggest ceremonial activity of a very strange sort here. And I I think the, the most telling indication of the ceremonial nature of these enclosures is what happened next. Because the sort of penultimate um, event here, as Waterman discovered, was the construction of what he called the great 40-metre structure. And this was a huge building, as the name implies, some 40 metres across, uh, constructed of great concentric rings of timber posts. And there was what he called the ambulatory, this processional way which you see here, leading to a great timber post uh, that formed the centre of the... 40-metre structure. It was all carefully built to a predetermined radial plan. What was interesting was that it was very clear in the excavations that it had a relatively short life. Um, The great timber post in the centre had been felled around 95 BC, judging, judging from dendro dating. But at some point, very quickly thereafter, this shrine... Uh, which may or may not have been roofed, uh, was filled with stones. And the vertical timbers, which still stood, including the great central timber, formed voids in the cairn material. And they still survived uh, to quite a distance up into that cairn material, the uppermost levels having disappeared, presumably because of movements in the, the stone cairn. There was some evidence that these vertical timbers in the great circular structure had borne some sort of weight because they had sunk below their, you know, basal uh, level in the post pits in which they had been placed. 
And uh, Chris Lynn and Waterman suggested that uh, this great timber structure had been roofed in this uh, fashion, and many published versions of this reconstruction have appeared in, in print. But once again, I, I think this is not certain. There may have been a roof, but there could equi equally well have been perhaps a flat-topped stage on these timbers in, in some description. In any event, nothing was found within the structure to demonstrate any sort of uh, you know, domestic activity. So I think, without doubt, we're looking at a great ceremonial uh, uh, shrine here. One, as I said, that had a very short life, and one that was eventually uh, filled with stones. To see it as a shrine to the horse goddess is not, I think, taking a leap too far. And uh, many years ago, Derek Allen uh, published um, uh, a paper on a series of continental coins that showed horses associated with Gallo-Roman shrines, including one, as you can see on the, the bottom right there, which shows a horse actually in a shrine. And I wouldn't exclude the possibility at all that uh, the great 40-metre structure, or indeed many of the structures that preceded it, were associated with um, equine rituals here at Navan, rituals associated with the great mare, the, the horse goddess. Um, the filling of the shrine with stones to produce the cairn uh, that Waterman uncovered uh, included, as I said, the surrounding of the great central timber post with stones. And as you can see here, um, it's very clear once the roof is removed, so to speak, that the great central timber post was the focal element in this extraordinary construction. The surface of the cairn had its own peculiarities, because as you can see from this uh, excavation photograph, when the cairn was uncovered, a whole series of radial lines appeared in the surface of the cairn. And that great central timber post was the focal point in this wheel-shaped device on the summit of the, uh, the cairn. Um, uh, Chris Lynn has speculated that we might be looking at a, a great solar uh, symbol here, perhaps associated with a god like the continental Tyrannus, who had a wheel as one of his um, uh, emblems. But um, I think there may be another and uh, more interesting explanation for this. However, what sort of rituals took place in the shrine uh, before we leave its uh, interior, um, so to speak? The historian Charles Doherty has considered some of the rituals that might have been taken place here. And like many writers, he has been drawn to the famous account of um, the inauguration rite of a Donegal um, sept, the Kennel Connell. And that famous Welsh visitor to Ireland, Giraldus Cambrensis, recorded in the 12th century an oft-quoted account of one of the inauguration rituals associated with the Kennel Connell. And of course, he was anxious to display the Irish as a barbarian, so he couched in a very negative fashion, as you can see. But it's worth looking at very closely. He was recording events of times past, but this is an important piece of antiquarian lore recorded, as I said, in the 12th century. He wrote, when the whole people of that land had been gathered together in the one place, a white mare is brought forward into the middle of the assembly. He who is to be inaugurated, not as a chief, but as a beast, 
not as a king, but as an outlaw, embraces the animal before all. Professing himself to be a beast also, and I emphasize this phrase. The mare is then killed immediately, cut up in pieces and boiled in water. A bath is prepared for the man afterwards in the same water. He sits in the bath, surrounded by all his people, and all, he and they, eat of the meat of the mare, which is brought to them. He quaffs and drinks of the broth in which he is bathed, not in any cup or using his hand, but just dipping his mouth into it about him. With this unrighteous rite has been carried out, his kingship and dominion has been conferred. And again, I ask you to note the emphasis. It's a peculiar insertion. He professed himself uh, to be a beast also. Many writers have compared this um, Kennel Connell ritual to the Hindu horse sacrifice, um, the Asvameda, in which the principal spouse of the king submits to a symbolic union uh, with a dead stallion. The major uh, historical source for this uh, is a 9th century religious tract, but it's very clear that elements are much older, going back well into the 2nd millennium BC. The preparatory ritual in this um, Indian ritual began with a selection of a stallion that was purified and released in a northeasterly direction. It was allowed to wander for a year, escorted by a hundred princes and others, and the return of the horse marked the beginning of the elaborate consecration rituals. The horse was bound to a central stake and various other animals, including goats and cows, were tied to it. And when the stallion saw mares penned in the sacrificial area, its neighing was interpreted as the recitation of a Vedic verse. It was then attached to a chariot and driven about before being unharnessed and laid on a gold cloth and suffocated, no blood uh, being shed. And at the moment of its death was the invocation, you do not die of this, indeed you come to no harm. You go to the gods on easy paths. The chief wife for the queen, as I say, lay with the dead animal and imitated copulation while priests and other women present engaged in scabrous dialogue. And finally the horse was dissected. Portions were roasted and offered to the god Prajapati, lord of creation, and then to those present. Now, several writers have noted the obvious uh, inversion here. In India, the ritual involved a stallion and a woman, while the Irish ceremony concerned a king and a mare. But both involved a symbolic union and the killing and dismemberment of a horse, and the purpose was to ensure fertility and prosperity. And it's worth noting, too, that both rites ended in the, cons- in the consumption of parts of the animal. And in the Indian ritual, other animals were sacrificed, too. Only the greatest of Indian kings uh, could perform this ceremony. And as late as the 8th century AD, it was the only touchstone to test the might of a king, a king who deserved uh, to govern the world. Charles Doherty, in fact, has argued that at Navan, this was not the place of inauguration of a local provincial king, but a, 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 a location associated with the concept of universal kingship. At Navan, a paramount king would, in performing this version of the equine ritual, become basically a chakra vartan in the Indian sense, a world king. And Doherty suggests that the great central post was the 
Axis Mundi, because at Navan, as in Vedic India, the world king could only reside in the middle, the zone of the, the sacred. In India, the world king, the Chakravartin, Chakra meaning wheel, was a wheeled turner. Basically, he behaves like the sun, protecting and destroying all creatures with his rays, and he promotes the welfare of his people. Charlie Doherty suggests that at Navan, the clay mound that eventually covered the cairn formed the king's seat, or Fura, the same name we came across at Tara. And this was the equivalent of the Indian prasada, the seat of divinity, the home of gods and kings. At Awanmaka, then, the horse sacrifice may have been the culmination of rituals of a sacred marriage, often used, called by the Greek term hieros gamos, at which the ritual mating with the mythical sovereignty goddess granted the right to rule to a tribal king, who symbolically, basically, uh, slept with her. It might be added that if this was the case at uh, Awanmaka, the act of mimicking copulation with its horse goddess, the act of mimicking copulation with, with a mare would have been an especially potent uh, expression of the significance of the sacred marriage there. This, of course, was a contract with the supernatural. Are there any archaeological traces of these sort of rituals, either in Ireland or elsewhere? I think there might be some evidence at Navan, but elsewhere? Well, remember the phrase professing himself... Uh, to be a beast. Um, if we turn to some of the continental evidence, there's this very famous wine flagon from a princely grave at Rheinheim in, uh, in Germany. And um, the wine flagon has at the top this gilded figure of a, a horse with a human face. Several writers have described this as a centaur. But a centaur, of course, has arms and a human torso. Um, this is much more than a mythical beast. Uh, Miranda Green uh, has proposed that disconcerting images like this human-headed horse, um, also found on some Gaulish coins, are it, perhaps expressions of the chaos and dangers of transgressing boundaries. I would prefer to think that perhaps here we're looking at a, a very potent uh, representation of the phrase professing himself to be a beast because it has been suggested that this phrase used by Giraldus Cambrensis might mean that the inaugurant in these Irish rituals may have voiced an actual ritual um, utterance, such as, I am equos, thou art equa. In other words, I am a horse, you are a horse, which recalls the Vedic marriage formula, I am he, uh, thou art she. And this very unusual combination of horse and human head could be a compelling uh, representation of these equine invocations that were such a momentous part of kingship rites performed perhaps over a wide area uh, of Europe. Needless to say, the evidence is very scrappy. But it's intriguing to note that um, this quotation could apply uh, elsewhere. In faraway Bulgaria, uh, there's a very famous uh, wine jug that bears a scene, as you can see, that immediately must recall several of the other images we've been looking at today. The, there's a figure here of a goddess on this silver jug, 
And as you can see, she is flanked by pairs of human-headed horses. This is the great horde from Rogozen, uh, found in 1985. Some people consider this to be a libation vessel with a cultic purpose. And some people have suggested that these are centaurs. They are not centaurs. These are, again, these human-headed horses that I think carry a very different um, message. To return to Ireland, uh, Doherty has suggested that the, the concept of the world king is to be found in early Irish uh, poetry. And indeed it is in some of the poems associated with uh, Leinster. There's one brief, brief reference to a king named Bresuel, who is identified with both the whole world and the sun. A brilliant burning flame, a brilliant burning sun, as you see, that heats is the flame Bresuel, fair one of Ireland, descendant of Lork, who lays waste the world. This association of kingship with solar imagery is unsurprising because we've come across a fair body of archaeological evidence to support the fact that there was a widespread solar cult of some description in Iron Age Ireland. And if rituals of world kingship were one of the motivations for the creation of Navan Mound, then those who carefully built the king's seat there must have been well aware of the ritual precedents that existed. The purpose of the timber shrine and the great wheel shape etched in the surface of the cairn must have been profoundly important uh, symbols. Indeed, the insertion of the great pillar at Navan was probably the most profoundly significant act uh, of all. Because as I said before, the pillar is the focal point of the radial lines carved in the summit of the cairn. These lines are, in fact, produced by different levels of stones, different arrangements of stones and minor variations in the structure. And they do not descend into the cairn itself. They are simply uh, a very deliberate uh, surface feature. I think here we have at Navan a representation of the axis mundi and the, the solar wheel. And in the earliest Indian uh, cosmogony reflected in the Rig Veda, the cosmic pillar is the mythical axis of the world, both separating uniting, and uniting heaven and earth. And founded in the waters uh, below the earth, this pillar was the channel through which cosmic order was imposed on the world. And when the sun unites with its summit, sun and pillar become a metaphysical unity represented by this wheel above the pillar. This is the wheel pillar that I mentioned uh, a moment ago, and it's a relatively common early Buddhist symbol. And I think this configuration of wheel pillar and solar symbol uh, is expressed in the great cairn at Navan in a most extraordinary way. Georges Dumézil would be delighted to see this piece of monumental confirmation of his thesis that perhaps ancient elements of Indo-European beliefs occur at either end of the Indo-European world. It might be worth noting too, by the way, that the great pillar at Navan was set in very wet foundations, which allowed the timber to be preserved for at least a portion of its lower part. And votive pillars of this sort in India had to be placed in watery contexts as well. And the presence of water was a necessary element for the foundation of votive pillars. Now, while Chris Lynn's suggestion of a, a link with a Gaulish Tyrannus is not impossible, 
I think this combination of symbols, like horse sacrifice, represents yet another illustration of the survival of Indo-European beliefs and practices. On a level uh, with the sun and at the axis of the world, uh, the clay-capped summit of the great mound at Navan was an exalted stage uh, for royal ceremonial. And those who stood on top of the mound would have been acutely conscious of what lay beneath uh, the grassy coverage that eventually covered this. Briefly on a Scottish note, um, I was very intrigued uh, to read that the um, Belgian scholar Claude Sterk some years ago suggested that a Scottish legend might contain an echo of the Asphameda practice. You remember that in the Indian scenario it's recorded that a stallion was allowed to wander for a year before being back, brought back um, for the consecration ceremonies and for the sacrifice. Sterk suggested that a, a, a Scottish legend that records that in the 14th century William Thane of Cawdor dreamt that he should place a coffer of gold on the back of a donkey and let it roam freely for a day. And wherever it came to rest after one day was the place to build his castle to ensure his family's prosperity. And the animal lay down under a holly tree that is still preserved, albeit dead, in the castle's dungeon. And there's a lengthy 19th century account uh, of this event. The long dead tree has been dendro dated to 1372 and presumably that's the year it died in the dungeon for a lack of uh, sunlight. Now I have to grant you that uh, a wandering ass uh, is a, perhaps a bit far removed from the purified stallions of Vedic ritual but it is an intriguing legend and since so many of these tales only survive in attenuated scraps I would not rule out the possibility at all that here we have in Scotland the last echo of a ritual associated with kingship inauguration. In any event um, at Navan Mound, um, this wasn't just a place concerned with kingly inauguration. This was a place where the creation of the world was reenacted time and time again. And even though much of the rest of the interior of this great enclosure, and indeed part of the mound, still remains unexplored, on pre present evidence, um, this building of the great mound was the last event to take place in, in this enclosure. And then Alan Marker became, if you like, a focal point in the literary landscape. And its prehistoric kingly associations uh, captured the imaginations of the medieval storytellers in a, a very different way. And in a major series of tales, of which the famous Thoin Bokulia is just one, it achieved mythic status of another sort. Um, and its pagan rituals were quietly uh, forgotten. In fact, it became an emblem of immemorial uh, royal authority, and the Ulster kings uh, in medieval times employed such titles as King of Ammon and King of Ulster. And indeed, in, in, in one 12th century um, panegyric on its Christian kings, parallels are sought uh, with Homeric Troy. Each single man of Ammon's territory has a counterpart in tumultuous lordly Troy, according to the medieval scribe. The great prehistoric centre became a mythic centre for heroic uh, deeds and undertakings, and it too was eventually superseded uh, by nearby Armagh with its more powerful uh, Christian uh, magic. But in recreating Aonmaka as a royal settlement and the dwelling place of heroes, the medieval scribes 
as we've seen, I think, still left us some fleeting glimpses of its horse goddess, the great mare, and the rituals that may have taken place there, the rituals that may have taken place elsewhere, in Scotland and indeed in continental Europe uh, as well. Thank you. Mm.